Habakkuk was, in some terms, a professional prophet. Uh, we have reason to believe, as we look through his book, uh, as three chapters. Uh, the first two chapters are kind of this back-and-forth dialogue between him and God, where he, he uh, asks God a question and God responds, and that facilitates to a new question and a new response from God. And then in light of all that exchange, we get to chapter 3, which is this, uh, the, the, these, these songs of the, what's going on in the heart of Habakkuk. And, and we see some different signs that kind of lead us to believe that he was probably a professional in the temple, meaning you know, he helped facilitate the going on of the temple. And so that's Habakkuk. That's about all we know about him. We know his name and, and that he was most likely facilitating that role in the temple. Um, but I want to unpack real quick, why are we studying Habakkuk? Uh, you know, first of all, just any time we go into God's Word, there's value in it. There, there's value in, in, in studying any aspect of, of the Bible. So if you're new in your, your faith or you're not sure maybe where's the next place you want to go, um, it, it's one of those things where you can go anywhere in God's Word and, and, and be built up and, and see value and see, see God's truth, see God's character. Um, I, I would encourage you to, to start with one of the Gospels if you're just starting off, uh, either in John or Mark. It's, it's a good place to start as far as being able to understand uh, some of these other things, like Habakkuk, it t- takes some, some background and some pers- perspective to see some of the, the truths that God is communicating there. But really, anywhere in God's Word, God will speak to us. And we can see His character, we can see who He is. And in light of who God is, we can understand how we should then go and live. And so that's one reason that we're studying Habakkuk, because it, it's the Word of God. But th- this question kind of comes up in the midst of, of this book, that kind of asks this question of, of who is on the throne of your life? Who sits in the, the seat of control? Maybe you have a seat of control in your house. It's probably the one where the remote control is sitting on the side and that kind of runs the house. Or maybe it's wherever mom is. Maybe she runs the house. I don't know. But in our individual lives, there's a seat of control, a throne of our life. And, and honestly, um, we, we could throw out different answers, but we could boil them all down to one of two options. Either God sits on that seat or man sits on that seat. And Habakkuk kind of struggles with that, and, and we see that genuine struggle going back and forth as far as he's put God on the throne of his life, but because of some questions he has, there's a temptation to take that back. And, and amongst many other characteristics of God, you could say in one sense he's also a gentleman. He's not going to force his way into saying, uh, that, that's my spot. He, will, he wants us to give it to him, and, and so there's also an ability for us to kind of try to take it back in some aspects of our life. And so we see that, that back and forth going on, I think that's something that really applies to where we are today. Do we trust God to, to first of all, give him that seat of control in our lives? But do we trust him to leave him there? You kind of saw that in the video where, I trust you to do this trust fall because I know you're behind me. But all of a sudden, Jesus is in front of you, and she can't see how he would work. And that was enough to say, no, I'm taking control back. I'm not going to listen anymore because that's just too much. And so Becca gets into those kind of things of who's on the throne of your life. Um, he asked this question, why isn't God, and I'm paraphrasing here, why isn't God doing the things that I think he should be doing? I think that's a question we ask all the time. And some of you guys, I apologize, you are going to hate today because you're longing for a concrete answer to your why question. God, why did you this? Why did you allow that? Why, why is this pain going on in my life? Why is this struggle or strife going on? And you are looking for, longing for a concrete, this is why. 
I don't have that for you. But what I, what I do have for you is this question that God kind of gives in his response to Habakkuk of, do you trust me? Do you trust that I am who I say I am? Will you trust me to fall back even though you see me standing in front of you? But I've said, you can trust me. And so I apologize if that's where you're at, but I trust that God will work in your life and, and, and through these questions of, do you trust me? While you may not get that specific answer to the why in your life, we can still walk out of here this morning and in, in the weeks ahead saying, God, I do trust you. And I will continue to step forward and move forward in my life with you. Because here at Meadowland, uh, because we believe this is the characteristic of God, we're more concerned with your future than your past. And so we want to help you take that next step of, of, of walking with God and keeping him on the throne of your life. So that, that's some of the reasons why we're going through here. And we're going to see that God is trustworthy. And that we can live by faith. And the righteous live by faith. Well, I need to give you some background. Um, depending on your own background, some of this may be very familiar to you as I, as I walk through some of the history of Israel, some of the history of God's people. To some of you, this may be very foreign. And so I'm going to try to walk a line uh, of not overwhelming you and giving you too much, uh, but also uh, those that don't have any background, I want you to be able to understand the, the history that Habakkuk would be having when, when he would kind of come on, on, on the scene with him. And those that are familiar with this, hopefully this is just encouraging for you. You just kind of, oh yeah, I remember that, I remember that, I remember that. Because it's important to know his perspective. To know that when some of the things that are going on that we're going to read about, to really know why that brings about the response it does. So I'm going to backtrack a little bit. The book of Genesis, we have, you've probably heard the phrase Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're kind of the patriarchs, the father figures, the forefathers of Israel, the people of God. And basically God came to Abraham and missed some other promises and said, I'm going to make a nation out of you and out of your bloodline. And then so he had uh, sons, you know, Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob. Jacob gets his name changed to Israel. He has all the sons. That's where you get Joseph and his, uh, his coat. Uh, and that, through some other stories, which we're not going to get into today, leads to the, the, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being in Egypt and expanding. I mean, they are growing. And all of a sudden, there's a change of power in Egypt, and they're continuing to grow and to kind of keep things in check, keep things in order, because the friendship that was there was forgotten about by the pharaohs. The pharaohs said, okay, you're now our slaves. And that's how the people of God became enslaved in Egypt. And that that goes on for years. And and, and people of God are crying out. God uh, raises up Moses and uses Moses to free his people from Egypt, and and they're freed from Egypt. And then they go into these 40 years of wandering. In essence, God allows for these 40 years for that entire generation uh, to die and a new, a new nation to be uh, risen up. And so I want you to imagine that this room is now that, that nation. We are now the people of God, and we're about to enter in the promised land, the land that God promised to our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if, if we are the people of God, Israel. And so we're now moving into the promised land. The one catches, it's occupied. And so we go through a time in Israel's history where there is a lot of bloodshed and a lot of war where God is going before his people and basically they're clearing everyone out of this land that God is giving to them. And God is with them and, and it's victory after victory. And the people get this point where they're like, everyone else has a king. We want a king. And God's like, no, you don't. No, everyone else has a king. We want a king. No, you don't. I'm your God. That's all you need. We want a king. And so finally God says, okay. I'll give you a king. And he gives them Saul. And at this point, throughout the history of the kings that go out to Israel, 
um, and then Judah, which we're going to get to, you can kind of put them in one of two categories, good and bad. The good kings, when I say that, I'm referring to the kings that walked with God, that did what they could to lead the people in, in, in worshiping the one true God. The kings that were bad set up temples to false gods, set up idols, all these other things to worship apart from God and led the people astray. And it really was that black and white, this list of kings. Some were good and led people towards God, and some were bad and led them away. And the unfortunate part is the majority we're going to see were actually bad. So they go in the promised land, and they have King Saul. He was bad. These people away. God brings up David. David's a king, and kind of finishes the rest of that clearing the promised land, and there's a lot of blood on his hands. And he's like, God, we finally acquired the promised land. I want to build a temple for you. Because up until this point, if you've ever heard the word term tabernacle, it's a fancy word for tent, but in Scripture, most of the time it's referring to a specific tent that was where uh, worship of God was conducted. And, and David says, you need a, a temple, not just a tent. And God says, no, you are not the one to build that for me. You can prepare for it, and he, he gets all these resources, and it's actually David's son, Solomon, who's the next king. So on the third king of Israel, and he builds the temple. And this is kind of a, a significant point. Now you got to remember, the people of Israel have this history of a covenant with God, a promise with God, and they're waiting for this, okay, when has it fully arrived? To where we're this, this mighty nation, we have uh, our own land, and there's peace and prosperity. And I would argue that the closest that they've come to that is at this point in time with Solomon where he finishes the building of the temple. There's peace, there's prosperity, things are great. In the dedication of the temple, um, Solomon has some prayers. And then just kind of to reiterate and reinforce God's covenant with his people, we can read here in Second Chronicles, it'll be on the screen behind me. Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God's reinforcing, follow me, follow me, follow me. Do you know how many generations it took from this point, this point where, like I said, probably the closest they've been to fully you know, peace and prosperity and, and realizing the, the, the promises of God that were made to Abraham? Do you know how many generations it took before this started to go down? Any guesses? Speak up, I heard the one thing. One. One generation. Solomon's uh, uh, children was like a bad Jerry Springer show. It was like Days of Our Lives and Springer all mixed into one. I mean, it's just, if you want some crazy reading, I mean, dig into that stuff. It's, it's some wild stuff. And, and, and so, basically, um, after Solomon, things go downhill. So much so, it's not just, hey, we had a bad king. The nations, these 12 tribes of Israel that they're broken up into, divide into two different nations. And so you have the northern kingdom, which can, uh, maintains the name Israel, and that has 10 of the 12 tribes. And then to the south, you have what's called Judah, because it's the tribe of Judah, and eventually Benjamin, that tribe, joins along with them. And so you have Judah to the south, and you have Israel in the north. But it's not the full Israel, it's now just those 10 tribes. And they have two separate different kings. And that continues. Well, it only continues so long for one of them because shortly thereafter, Israel, the ten tribes, is taken out by Assyria. Okay? Everyone's still tracking with me. I know I'm giving you a lot, but this is important for seeing uh, why Habakkuk has the response that he has. Because he, he, he knows his history, and he knows that, that all this you know, 
things progressing forward until this time of Solomon, and now it starts going down. This division and, and, and conquest, you know, uh, the northern kingdom being taken over. Israel's wiped out by the Assyrians. The majority of the kings from this point forward were bad. There's a few, Hezekiah was awesome, uh, but then it goes again, you know, it doesn't, the, the apples do fall far from the tree, and it doesn't continue on. And so let's fast forward to a king called Ammon. Israel's gone, Judah's left, the two tribes, and this, they're the, ones, the promises of God, they believe, are still true to them, and they are. And so they're still looking for that, this day where, you know, kind of going back to where they were in the time of Solomon. And so you've got these two tribes, and Ammon dies, which is not a bad thing to say, he, he was a bad king, drew uh, people into idol worship and, and all kinds of things away from God. He dies, his son takes the throne which you would think, if you know about his son, would be something like, okay, uh, I, don't, I don't see us pulling out of this anytime soon because his son is eight. Um, you can imagine what it might turn out to be like if an eight-year-old is running the kingdom. Everything you're thinking doesn't happen. Just the opposite. At age 16, uh, Josiah, that's the king's, uh, Amon's son, who was eight at the time, now at 16, he dedicates his heart and his mind to God. And he says, I'm pursuing God. The temple that Solomon, one of his ancestors, had built it, it is practically in ruins. It's a mess. Just imagine it was kind of abandoned because all this false worship had been set up. And Josiah's like, that's a travesty. Let's get in there. Let's clean it up. He brings in some power, some backup. They start cleaning it up, and they uncover some scrolls. Majority of scholars believe it was uh, the Torah, which is the first five books of the, the Old Testament. And, and it was a word of God to his people, and he read it, and he was cut to the heart as he saw the character of his God. And he wept. He's like, the people got to hear this. And so he calls the people together, which is pretty easy to do when you're the king, no matter how old you are. He calls everyone together, and they read the word of God, and the people weep as they see how far they've, they've fallen. And he rallies the people together. He says, we are going to uh, uh, um, repent. We're going to follow God. We're going to get rid of all these false idols. And, and, and seriously, this guy turns things around. Things are looking up. This is awesome. There is hope again. I need to pause for a second. I need to do a little quick map of, of the Middle East. And, and, and I wasn't sure how to do this, but the easiest way to do it was. And so I actually had a buddy of mine had, uh, implied this the first time, uh, or started this. I'm not sure why I said implied. Um, and so I had him ship me this, this resource. And, and so it's right behind me. Probably wondering what's doing up there. It's, it's the air map. And um, I can stand behind it. You can see right through it. So basically, in this air map, you have the shoreline of the Mediterranean. Uh, a little more over here. The shoreline of the Mediterranean Sea, Okay. The easiest way to think of this section of Israel, you have the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea, which is longer, but about the same width, the Sea of Galilee. So Galilee, Jordan River, and then the Dead Sea. And then here's the shoreline. So there's all this land in the middle, and a majority of that at this point in time is Judah. And you got three major players on the scene right now, okay? Judah is not one of them. Judah is like peewee softball right now. You know, just kind of... The kind of like T-ball where there's no outs and everyone gets a bat. That's just because of their size. They're just not very big as far as world powers. And they're kind of right in that chunk there. Down here, we got Egypt. Egypt is a powerhouse, okay? But they're on the way down. From this vantage point in history, obviously, we can see that. So Egypt's on their way down. They kind of come up over, you know, see Galilee, Jordan, Dead Sea. Come up over that. Over here, 
we got Assyria, who are kind of right now the big dogs around town. They're the major league. But, like most major league teams, you know, their time has come. You know, so they're not the Yankees, they're, they're I don't know, the White Sox. Um, so, I don't even know baseball, I could not make any sense. But <laughs> So, you have them over here, and you also have the, Chal- the, the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians. We'll use the term Babylonians from this point forward, the interchangeable, but the Babylonians. And basically, Assyria and Babylon are starting to duke it out. Babylon is the third superpower, and they're on the rise. They're on the way up. Okay? You tracking with me? Babylon, Assyria, Judah in the middle, Egypt. All right, so Egypt, I don't know why it's cool, but it's cool to say Egypt like that. Um, So, the king of Egypt is partners with Assyria and says, hey, we need to go help them fight Babylon. To get our army up there, we have to go through Judah. And so he, out of just common courtesy, writes to Josiah. says, hey, Josiah, we'll be traveling through. We just got to go help out Assyria. Josiah says, no. And Egypt's kind of like, we we didn't really look for your permission. We're kind of coming, you know, we just want to be nice. And Josiah's like, no, you're not coming through. And he leads his army in battle against Egypt. And and this guy, I, I love his heart. You could say it was foolish, but I love his heart. One, it was, his heart was after God. But two, it's not, he's not the kind of king that just sits up in, a, in an ivory tower and says, go fight those battles. He puts on a full soldier's outfit and almost disguises himself and goes and leads his men from the front lines. Leads them in battle. And the unfortunate side is he dies. So he dies in his battle as Egypt's trying to come up around and help out Assyria. And so they go back home, and, and so Egypt's up there helping out Assyria. Once all that's done, on his way back, they kind of take care of Josiah's sons. And, and you know, basically, the one son that, that took his place followed in his grandfather's footsteps instead of his dad's. So instead of going, the, you know, continuing what Josiah had been doing, Josiah's son kind of does his own little thing. And, and so then uh, king of Egypt takes him out, and his brother was a bigger moron than the, the first was. I mean, it's just things are starting to fall apart very quickly. So not only is this, this hope now gone because Josiah's dead, but Babylon is getting tougher. Still small, but I mean, it, it, he's one of the superpowers. And Assyria's already wiped out Israel. So that's, that's the stage that we come to Habakkuk with. If you've got your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and open them up. If you use the ones in front of you uh, in the pews, uh, 785 is the page we're going to be on. Uh, it, it's in the, the chunk there with the minor prophets. If you find Nahum, it's right after Nahum, right before Zephaniah. That probably doesn't help anyone. My apologies. <laughs> 785. If you brought your own Bible, uh, you, you know, I'm not sure what page that is. You can probably just grab one of ours and it'll be easier to find it real quick. Um, if you want to turn on your Bible, that is awesome. We have, you know, any way you can get the Word of God in your hands. If you don't have a Bible, Take one of these ones that we have here. If you know someone that needs one, grab one and, and bring it to them as a gift. Uh, there's no reason that you can't have the Word of God uh, to call your own. All right, so here we go. Habakkuk chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Something I need you to remember as we continue to walk through uh, the book of Habakkuk, that that there's this this, uh, illustration of the wicked and the righteous. And, And who it is changes. In this context, 
Habakkuk is talking about Judah, his own people. He's saying that there's wickedness in the people of Judah. And there's some righteous too. And it's so messed up right now that justice is perverted. And those who are righteous are getting, you know, they're getting a bum rap. They're getting no justice. They're getting beat up on. Later in chapter 2, we see that, that wickedness and righteousness in reference to the Babylonians uh, versus Judah. But in this chapter, he's referring to within Judah, those that are wicked and those that are righteous. What's interesting is, is so basically, Habakkuk is seeing all this happening. And typically, we see a prophet uh, receives a message from God and takes it to the people. He kind of flips that around a little bit. On behalf of the people, he goes to God. He says, God, I know who you are. I know your, your character, what you're like, and I don't get it. I don't understand. I can't match what I see happening with who I know you to be. He's confused. Basically, he's in the midst of a roundhouse kick to the soul. You can use that. I don't mind. Go ahead and use that. Put it on Facebook. Roundhouse kick. I probably even got it from somewhere else. I don't even know. But he's getting beaten down. He says, where are you, God? Don't, don't you see what's happening? Don't you hear the cries of your people? We're, we're all that's left. We're just down to two tribes, and, and we had a good king that was leading us the right way, and now we're being led by his moron brothers, or sons. And, and there's all this turmoil going on around us. Where's the hope? And we can see, you know, back in verse 3, says, why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong, destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. Like, why do I have to deal with this stuff? You know, you can almost see the sense where he just wants to take the throne back of his own life and say, I'm just going to do it myself. But he's, he knows that, you know, God needs to stay on that throne of his life, and so he's just being genuine and raw as he engages God. Do you have any doubts or struggles? Do you have questions for God? God, why this? Why did you allow that? Why didn't you step in in this? Those times of our life, yes, preaching is, is awesome, it's good, it's healthy. I, I, I equate it to a meal. I can't tell you every single meal I had last week, but I know if I didn't have them all, I'd be hungry. and I, I'd be weaker than I am now. So I can't tell you every message I've, I've heard or every message I've, I've preached even. But I know without them, I'd be weaker today in my walk with God. That's all good stuff. But these are the times of your life that Habakkuk is going through where he doesn't need, here's three points and how to follow God, or here's seven points to being a godly man. There's some real stuff he's struggling with. Things continue to go in the wrong direction and God seems to be silent. See, when the perceived actions or inactions of God, note that word perceived, when the perceived actions or inactions of God do not line up with our understanding or our expectations or our assumptions of his character, of who God is, Basically, when what God does or doesn't do in our perception doesn't line up with who we think he is, our trust in God is challenged. Our trust in God is challenged. And and that's what's going on with Habakkuk right now. Like, God, I trust you, but I I don't get it. I don't see how these things match up. Maybe some of you have never placed your trust in God. You know, maybe it's been because of something like this. God, you let so-and-so die. I can't trust you. You, you let myself or this person, my family, go through this trial or tribulation. I can't trust you. You let whole nations commit genocide against others and, and, and tornadoes and, and hurricanes and, and atrocities in this world that it just they break my heart. God, I can't trust you. 
Some of us have placed our trust in Jesus, but we still feel like sometimes God isn't acting like who we understand him to be. And it's almost like the music turns on and we want to play musical chairs with God and say, okay, maybe I'll get the seat of, of control again. God won't take it from us. We must surrender it to him. And so because we can't understand, we say, I can't trust you, God. I don't understand what you're doing. I can't trust you. But what's interesting is as we're going to see, God is God. If we could fully understand him, it'd be a pretty small God. So just the fact of God being God, we cannot fully understand, fully imagine the things of God. Not that we can't pursue to understand, not, not that we can't pursue to know more and more about God, but to fully understand the person of God. I don't believe it's going to happen this side of eternity because we are finite beings. We are a created being. Before it's our God reveals himself to us, and so we can get to know him this side of eternity. We can grow in that understanding and pursue that. To think that we could fully figure him out and fully understand every aspect of him. He's God. So we can't use that lack of understanding. We shouldn't use that lack of understanding as a reason not to trust them. And we're going to see that here in a bit. So I, I'm not sure what your story is. What's that moment in your life where you got that roundhouse kick to the soul? You just got, man, just knocked off the horse. You're like, I, I'm not sure how to go on. For me, it was when we tried to start having kids. Sarah and I, uh, my wife had said, well, about five years we want to know each other as husband and wife. And then we like to, you know, introduce you know, the, the, the mother and father titles in there by having kids. And it ended up being about six years. And part of that is, is we had some difficulties. We weren't getting pregnant. You know, we just had some blood tests done. And uh, turned out there, there was a certain hormone level that, that wasn't um, hot. Well, it was too high, I'm sorry, in my wife. And that, long story short, that led to us being in a neurosurgeon's office, um, coming back from just seeing an X-ray scan of her head. There's a CAT scan. In which, if you imagine, just behind the eyes, um, you know, kind of just the bottom of the brain. So kind of it's on the pituitary gland. A golf ball-sized tumor that we just saw in the image right there my wife's head. And the doctor saying, well, that, that, you know, that, that this is the issue. Man, I, it was a brief walk, maybe 10, 15 feet from that little room to the other room where the doctor was going to talk with us. I just remember my world was just turned over. God, where are you in this? We just wanted to experience the joy of having kids. And, and now not only can we potentially not have kids, but my wife's got a, a golf ball in her head. I just, and I'm trying to keep a strong face for my wife. As I can tell this is, I mean, this is her body, this is her head. And, and so we go in the room and the doctor proceeds to tell us, you know what, if you had to have something in your head, this is the best one because how responsive it is to medicine. And, and God continues to show himself powerful at, at, through those moments. I can look back now and continue to praise him, but in that process, it was difficult. My trust in God was being challenged. A little over a year ago, I, I was uh, in Lombard. So my wife and I are from most recently, and we're, we're leading a church in, in Addison, one town to the north, and the short version of the story is we were leading a campus that was getting shut down due, due to finances, and uh, it just meant I was getting laid off. At that point, uh, we'd already had our first daughter, Evelyn, uh, but you know, thanks be to God for that, and uh, we were actually pregnant with our second daughter, Olivia. And, and so we're six months pregnant, got a mortgage payment coming, and, and just got laid off. <laughs> That'll shake your trust in God right there. And God showed himself so trustworthy. I don't know how he's going to do it. But what, what's that moment in your life where your trust is shaken? That's what Habakkuk is going through. His trust is being shaken. We saw last month that, that when Jonah was faced with something, he ran. 
Well, Habakkuk, he responds with an honest cry out to God. I think he was, he was prepared to know, well, he, here's how you respond to these things. You pursue God. See, when we have questions about God, I believe the first place we need to go is to God. We have questions about God, the first place we should go is God. Y'all met Drew this morning, he came up and did announcements. If you want to know more about Drew, where would you go? To every other person in this room, right? No, you would go to Drew to know more about Drew. Who can tell me what he's thinking? Who can tell me what he's like? Maybe his wife could tell me a little more than, than everyone else could, but at the end of the day, to go to Drew, I would know that the heart of who he is, I could see those things and get to know Drew. The same is true with God. We can go to God and get to know him in that. Um, the other piece of that is actions, yes, they, they speak louder than words, but they don't tell the whole story. We had another case, of my, my daughter, uh, who's now going to be four, I think she was roughly two when this all went down, a little younger actually, um, was getting a lot of uh, infections and, and uh, bladder infections, and uh, she ends up, she has uh, had a reflux. Basically, things are going uh, in the wrong places, causing infections. And to discover that, they had to do this procedure. Basically, you take this toddler and you strap them in something that's going to immobilize them. I mean, their heads, you know, Velcroed in. I mean, everything's, they cannot move. And then they have to do some other procedures and whatnot. Um, long story short, I'm in the room with my daughter while this is going on. She's just screaming, screaming. Screaming, I'm like, I, I, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to comfort her. And so I'm right by her head. I'm right by her face. And, and it's like eye contact is right there. And I can only imagine the thoughts that are going through this little child's head of, Daddy, why are you allowing this to happen? Why aren't you stopping this? And it's breaking my heart, but I know that this is for her good and for her benefit and for her blessing to be able to figure out what's going on in her little body and, and to be able to heal that. And so, yes, those actions communicate something. But if all you have is a piece of the story, she would say, you know, you could say those actions communicate, well, you don't love her, you're letting her go through that pain. But as you get the whole perspective, you see, no, you love her. That's why you're with her as she's enduring this. That's why you're not leaving her side as she goes through this. And so the same is true with God. We don't have his perspective. And so when we struggle in our trust with God, the first place we should go is to God. Let's see what God's response is to, back, to Habakkuk. Habakkuk basically says, what gives, God? Do you hear me? Do you see what's going on? Verse 5, God's response. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. I love this. God's like, Habakkuk, you're not going to believe this. You won't even believe it if I tell you. I'm going to tell you. You will not believe this. Here's what's happening. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. This is the Babylonians. Uh, You can use that interchangeably there that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Uh, their horses are swift. I'm going to kind of skip through the last of time. Basically goes through all this stuff. At, uh, verse 10, at kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So Habakkuk thought God was absent. But God says, I've heard, I've seen, I have a plan, and it's in motion. Even if we can't see it, God is still working, and God is still good. Habakkuk couldn't see it, but God was still working, and God is still good. And God is still God. God has raised up the Babylonians to deal with the wickedness in Judah. The Babylonians are a fierce 
in wicked force. They're good at what they do. They, they, just, they laugh at kings and rulers because we'll just wipe you out. They are forced to be reckoned with. This is, this is not good news in one sense to Habakkuk. This is not fun news. Like, oh, great, you did hear, you got the memo, you know things are, are, are bad down here, and okay, so the Babylonians are going to come wipe us out. No, Habakkuk's struggling with this. We're going to see that as we keep reading here. So even if we don't like how God is working, God is still good and God is still God. We need to remember that as we get to know who he is more and pursue him. So this is kind of round two of Habakkuk's soul versus the world. As the bell rings, he kind of takes a solid punch to the head. He's kind of left staggering like, am I going to keep standing here? Okay, now I know God is here. I know God is listening, but he's going to wipe us out with, with, with Babylon? Well, here's his reply in Habakkuk 1, 12 and, uh, through the end of the chapter. We're going to go read 12 and 13. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Let me pause here real quick. That, that we shall not die. What he's talking about is like, we're, we're all that's left. You've made promises to your people. You're an everlasting God, and you said you're going you're to make this, us your nation. We can't die. You can't wipe us out with the Babylonians. How is that going to work? See, even when we don't understand it, God is still working and God is still God. He can't understand what God is doing. Have you ever had that in your own life where just things are going on? God, I don't understand it. Why? But God is still working in the midst of that. Uh, verse 13, you, are pure, uh, you, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked, swal- when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And this kind of brings us to Habakkuk's uh, main issue, which is going to be the part of his response to God, is would you use those who are more wicked than Judah to judge Judah? So he said, okay, yeah, I know I said there's issues in Judah, but the Babylonians, they're more wicked than us. You're going to use them to come in and, and, and take care of this? He's got this concept of, okay, well, uh, there, there's those who are righteous, those who are following God, and then there's those who are still your people, but they're, they're kind of wicked now, you know, before I called them wicked, but now compared to the Babylonians, they're not as wicked. And then you have the Babylonians, and you're going to use them to take care of all of us? He's really confused here. He's trying to make sense of this. His trust in God is challenged. When our trust in God is challenged, we should look closer at who God is. We should go to God first, and we should look closer at who God is. Um, a quick example for this. Who you are and your relationship with someone affects how you trust them. If I'm looking for someone to watch my daughters, if your family, you know, or a longtime friend, you got some history, you've been through some stuff together, I'm going to be a lot quicker to trust you, to know, okay, yeah, you can help care for my children. Now, if, if you're some random guy wearing a Packers jersey, driving a van full of cats, sorry, bud. Uh, unless you're taking them all to the dump, you know, doing a public service. I, I don't know. Um, I'm sorry, don't take cats to the dump. I don't do that. <laughs> well, maybe cats. Kittens can stay. <laughs> sorry, that was for Adam. Um, so who you are affects how you'll trust. And, and so as we get to know who God is more, that'll affect how we can trust in him. And as you know them, that changes how you interact. So say you're, you're meeting someone for lunch, okay? First person, the first example, is someone you know. They're trustworthy. 
and they're, they're about five minutes late. What do you do? Well, you're calling them up. This, you're, you're pursuing them. You're chasing after them. This isn't like you. I, I, I trust you, and this doesn't seem like who I know you to be. Is everything okay? That should be our, our, our response to God. God, I expected you to do this, but it's different. Why? I expected this kind of timing. I thought that was your timing, but it's different. We should pursue him because we know he can be trusted because he's God. But yet we kind of treat God like the guy we don't really know and don't really trust. Half hour goes by. Eh, they might show up. Maybe I'll send a text. Because you don't trust him anyway, you don't bother pursuing that. So in Habakkuk's response to God, we see his understanding of who God is by some of the words he uses, the names he identifies God with. This is what we're going to wrap up with here. Uh, if you look at verse 12, those are the ones we're going to kind of run through here. It starts with, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? The, the, the term there, O Lord, it's the same uh, name that God gave Moses. If you look at the story, uh, we're, we're, as God's calling Moses to be used in bringing his people up out of Egypt, he meets with them and he speaks through a burning bush and basically says, uh, you know, Moses like, who are you? And, and he says, I am. It's Yahweh is the best way we can understand. That's probably, uh, we're not really sure how that word will be pronounced, but that's kind of the, the accepted term right now is Yahweh. And it's the personal name of God. In a sense, uh, Habakkuk, Habakkuk is acknowledging, I remember who you are. You're Yahweh. We have this promise. We have this covenant. He's leaning into who God is. He's not running from him. In the midst of his, his trust being challenged, he's leaning in. I, I believe you're this God who is personal and connected to us as a people. God has made a promise and is working the lives of his people, and that's true today as well. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we have a personal God who's promised us that we call on his name, we'll be saved. We can lean in on that and trust him in that. He says, O Lord, my God. The word there for my God is Elohim. And this is more the title, not so much the personal name. My name is Steve. I am a father. Like God said, I'm Yahweh, Elohim, God. So he's God, which means he's creator, he's judge, he's all-powerful, all-knowing. He created all. We simply can modify some things to make some neat stuff. He, he's all-powerful, all-knowing. We're limited. He's eternal. We're, and, 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 uh, we're finite. Think of some of the most amazing stories of, of, of men and women that, who have lived, and when they die, their story stops, and, and the world keeps on going. Yet our God is eternal and everlasting. When we go through these soul-wrenching times of doubt and struggle, it's a reminder of how small we are and how large God is. And so we see Habakkuk saying, God, you are God. You are this personal God of our people, you are God in heaven who is powerful and mighty and huge and vast. And I can't fully understand and comprehend you because you are God. Because you're my holy one. Now he's describing some of the attributes of God. You are holy. God is perfect. God can do no wrong for he is holy. He establishes what is right and wrong. He's the standard by which all, others, all other standards are set. If you look at these three, it's interesting if you take any one of them out, I, I could understand why you wouldn't want to trust that kind of a God. If you had an uh, impersonal God, so not take out the Yahweh, who's just God and perfect. Uh, where's that, uh, how do I connect with him? 
Well, if you, if you put that personal touch back in and take out that he's the, the, the God, the creator of all, the, the all-powerful, all-knowing, okay, well, he's perfect and, and he's personal, but is he powerful? Is he able to, to move in my life and make a difference? Put that one back in and take out the holy one. Okay, well, he's personal and he's powerful, but I don't know if he's good. I don't know if he's perfect. I don't know. So you take any one of those out, and all of a sudden, oh, so the more we look at who our God is, the more we see we can trust him. And that moves Habakkuk to the, the second half of that verse, which is my rock, an immovable place of refuge. A lot of times we see that, that term used in the Scripture. It's in reference to a place of refuge. And that's what he does. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk, he kind of finishes um, his response back to God, and he says, God, I don't get it. I don't understand it. My trust is being shaken right now, but I'm going to lean into you. I'm going to actively wait. That watch post, it's a term of action. It's not just I'm going to sit somewhere and wait for something to happen. It's I'm going to take up my post, and I'm going to look for you and try to see where you are and what you're doing. So Habakkuk is modeling to miss this soul-shaking time, trusting that God will respond as he actively waits. And he even has this point where he says, awaiting reproof. I admit, God, that I don't know it all. There's probably something I'm missing. I'm awaiting correction. And that's where we're going we're to pause here and um, we're going to hold off for uh, the next week. Next two weeks, we're going to kind of go into chapter two and, and talk about faith a little bit. Okay, so if we're going to willing to trust God a little bit and place our faith in him, what does that look like played out? And then what does it look like if we put man on the seat? and leave man on, on the seat of the throne of our lives of control. So that's kind of where we're going the next couple of weeks, and then the fourth week we get some, uh, some kind of wrapping that up. So I'm excited. Hopefully you guys want, want to you know, join with us in that. If you want to read through Habakkuk you know, in the next couple of days, it's a quick read. Um, but we're going to transition here to, to point of communion. Because what, what a great thing to do on a day we're talking about trusting in God and actively waiting on him to say, you know what, there are things in my life that I'm, I'm struggling with trusting you, God but I want to lean into you like Habakkuk leaned into you. I, I want to be genuine and share those doubts because you have big shoulders and I want, to, I want to trust in you, God. And so I'm going, to, I'm going to actively wait by acknowledging that salvation comes through Jesus.